0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Thank you, Jim. Hello and welcome. This is the C-86 show. I'm David Eastel. I'm with you to the, I was going to say the end of time, but no, just the end of it, this interview. As you know, we always play the finest in indie pop. Well, I like to think so, but you also love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of The Farm, because I spoke to main man Peter Hooten very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, all that kind of groovy kind of stuff, as well as uh, the ups and downs and the merry-go-rounds. Being in an indie band, this is the interview. It's quality, well... Peter's good, I'm a bit rubbish. But um, yes, after a bit of casual chat about life, we got down to those early years of the farm and this was Peter's response. Peter, save this interview now.
1: Yeah, it did, yeah, yeah, it did. Um, I mean, we were, when we started off, it was very, um, it was during a period, you know, that indie music was not really a genre as such. You know, I think there was, obviously there was indie charts and things like that, but a lot of what it meant, Really was uh, independent shops, yeah, that's what it meant, I think. Um, and obviously, uh, I think the majors saw that there was a big market for that, and it was fairly fashionable, you know. And obviously, people like John Peel were at the front, the forefront of that, you know, and the John Peel sessions.
0: Well, that's right. Um,
1: so I think what happened is, I mean, I think what tended to happen is. The, the majors started to try and encroach on it, you know, in terms of uh, trying to buy some credibility, really, you know. Yeah. Uh, so they'd, what they tend to do was set up uh, subsidiary labels but still distribute them through the majors. But So it all got a bit, uh, you know, a bit clouded, really, you know.
0: Yes, because I sort of, um, I was born in the mid-60s, so I'm now in my mid-50s. Yeah. So, so during the 70s, you know, I kind of was obsessed with music but weren't, I suppose I weren't really sort of on the scene, so to speak, because you probably listen to music that had already been and gone. But it was kind of the 80s yeah. that I became much more like, oh, I'm, I'm sort of kind of with, yeah, with, yeah. With, with what's happening rather than... So I missed kind of punk and I obviously got kind of that kind of world... Of... I was very excited by glam when I was about twelve, and and the, uh, listening to Alice Cooper's Skulls Out, yeah. and then seeing David Bowie do Space Oddity, and thinking, "Wow, that's brilliant!" Thank God that yeah. was my first single, not Gary Glitter. Um, which, it could have been. It was <laughs> but so at the
1: time. I mean, you know, I was, you know, around at the same time. Uh, you know, obviously the Glitter Band, were, you know, they were awesome. they came out with some great pop pop oh records God. with me. Oh. Obviously, it's what's happened. Yes, since but... people have. Um, but, you know, at the time, you've got to think of, of what was happening at the time. You know I mean, I,
0: I, I wanted to be in Gary's gang, basically. That was just no question. He was just he yeah. was an awesome showman. But, but then in the 80s, I mean, it was kind of interesting because you had that punk and then post-punk period, which was all a bit like wire and... Um, Gang of Four and Peel and stuff yeah. like that, but then kind of Echo and the Bunny Men had come along. But I've always put indie pop down between the years of sort of eighty three to eighty seven. That kind of real sound that started to really be a genre, really, and then things changed. Yeah, Th- things I mean, changed. I loved
1: uh, I loved the stuff, you know, Postcard Records and yes. things like that. You know, I mean, there was certainly there was certainly uh, uh, labels which had a s- distinctive sound, wasn't it? Yes, and that well, was, that's what was uh, fantastic about it, you know. Because um, you grew up
0: in Liverpool and everyone yeah. talks about Erics, don't they? And they talk about Deaf yeah. School and then there was all those other... Yeah,
1: you well, know. Deaf School were a um, very interesting band, really, because they were, you know, they were a seminal band, obviously. Uh, but the I think they all met at college, didn't they? They came from all around different uh, parts of the country and met at college. But for me, Deaf School were the first band who you really thought, this is something really... Different, and it's it's something which is you know incorporating art uh, school music with you know with pop music. Yes. You know, and I think the very fact that Clive Langler went on to to produce Madness, you can hear a lot of Madness in a lot of Madness tunes. You can hear elements of Death School. Um, there's no doubt about that. I, you know, uh, and it quintessentially you know it was pop music. Death School was the coolest band for me. Um, you know, Enrico Cadillac the singer used to eat apple on stage which I thought was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Yeah. You know. So it was post punk really, you know, but it was still still had an element of uh, mystery about it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. They were very arty. I remember there was a band called the Fabulous, yeah. Fabulous Poodles as well that were probably from London area. But um, they they yeah. also they had a bit of cabaret and showmanship about it. They weren't just slinking on stage looking a bit sort of enigmatic with kind of yeah. wacky hair. They they kind of dressed up because because during that period there was a huge amount of unemployment, wasn't there? And being young, you didn't sort of feel a big thing yeah, well, about Jeff, a big I thing think about going, school
1: was... I think that school were like uh, you know you know late 70s really you know I think but you know the mass unemployment came after 79 you know yes. when uh, after Thatcher really because you know there was a, it was a definite economic policy to restrict the money supply you know which um, I don't think she really realized <clears throat> but that would cause mass unemployment you know Absolutely. she actually did a U turn within Two years of an administration because there was so much unemployment, really, you know. But that wasn't heralded at the time. But if you read into it, they started pouring money back into the economy, you know. But oh, the damage was, was already done, you know.
0: I think Heseltine had been sent up, handy to sort of try and sort something out? That of. was
1: after the riots, yeah. That was 81. That was after. And so, obviously, at the time, you know, the bunny men were big. You had um, Tears Off Explodes, you had the uh, Pete Wiley and War. You had China Crisis, groups like the Lotus, Lotus Eaters. they were all tended to be, I've looked back on a few of the interviews, really, in the lockdown. They all tended to be, at the time, they were escapist bands. They were, they, they were like the equivalent of, like, uh, Keats. You know, they were, they'd be photographed by waterfalls and that type of thing. So they didn't, didn't really reflect... Uh, what was happening in liverpool i remember being pretty vocal at the time i used to do a fanzine called the end you see and uh it used to be pretty vocal about the way um groups you know weren't talking about social problems you know but there's certainly an element of um you look at manchester and you look at their i you know like iconic groups and the, the photographs that they were taking you know were industrial wastelands photographs whereas the bunny men would be taken you know in uh, you know on a glacier or something (laughs) it's just (laughs) completely opposite really you know but uh, I think that was maybe that was a Liverpool bands trying to escape from that um, post industrial uh, society you know or or wasteland you know whereas I wanted the farm to be talking about uh, social issues like the clash the jam specials I'd been you know
0: Yes, so you got together. that was in the early eighties and and at that stage, I realized yeah. talking to a lot of bands they were unemployed for a certain period of time, and you could change, you know you could have <clears throat> job seekers' or enterprise allowance schemes yeah. so so all those so I, that that gave a lot of people a year to sort of faff about and
1: it do did that. yeah but i I wasn't um some of the group were unemployed, obviously, but i was at the time I was a youth worker, so I was working in the youth service, which was pretty interesting because. It was on the front line, really, of, uh, of what was happening in the city with, you know, heroin epidemics and that type of thing. So I was seeing it on the front line, what was actually happening, you know. Yes. Um, and it politicised me, you know. I mean, I was, I was always very interested in history and politics anyway. I'd studied it, you know, but um, that politicised me more, you know, when you saw uh, what, you know, what people were having to, to uh, live through, really, you know. The hopelessness, that was the that was the uh, startling thing about it. The hopelessness of it all, you know. So what I tried to do in the area, I was a youth worker. I didn't have a youth club. We were called detached youth workers. It was like street workers, you know. And what I tried to do is try to um, have experiences for the young people around there. So I, over about a seven or eight year period, I, I organised um, holidays or youth exchanges, you know. Uh, One of them was to, the most famous one was about 86, to New York. Unfortunately, the the, the youth group that was supposed to arrive, who was supposed to be putting us up in their houses in Harlem, never showed at the airport. (laughs) It was actually documented on Radio 4, Radio 4 with us. And they documented it, and it was like, it was funny the way they describe it, you know, but... Just 30 scouts, as go to the Big Apple, you know, and all this, but <laughs> the, the group that's supposed to um, couldn't meet us, and then when we went to the, uh, few days later, we stayed in the YMCA with the emergency money that we had, and then we went to the youth club where they were supposed to be, and and they said, oh, we, we couldn't put you up because we're in the middle of a crack epidemic, <laughs> <laughs> so it was like we were laying on the job, now we all thought Liverpool was bad because of heroin. And when we mentioned heroin to them, they're all going, no, man, heroin's not, that's not a problem. It's crack. You know? So, uh, But people who went on that, you know, would say, I still see some of them nowadays, and they say, you know, it was a life-changing experience for them. So that's what I tried to do, really, is to, by uh, using my contacts in the music industry as well, uh, to get, you know, um, trips like that organized. I got a load of, um, a load of flights off Virgin Atlantic uh, by writing to Branson, but also by winning the competition because I knew the manager of uh, HMV at Liverpool <laughs> who gave us a load of uh, application forms. You know, you had to spend 20 quid in the shop or something, and you got an application form. But he just gave me about 50 of them. Yes. And I knew how, uh, I knew, they said, why do you like Virgin? You know, and I didn't particularly like Virgin, but, you know, I knew the A&R speak. So I just put all, you know, filled everyone's names and all the kids from the estate, you know, and put the A&R speak, you know, uh, spirit of independence, but acts like a mate you know, all this rubbish, you know. <laughs> and I uh, won about 20 flights, which was good. Blimey. under <clears throat> is... different names, you know. Yes. But they were all, oh, the people then who were named on it lived on the estate, you see, so they, they all got the flights, you know. God, that's interesting. So it, was a, it was an amazing experience and... At the time we were um lots of people in Liverpool were into um Pink Floyd, you know, and still are. Yes. Genesis. It was all druggie type music, you know, but um, strange, strange because there was a very um a very popular group called Ground Pig who just basically did Lindas Simon and Garfunkel covers, you know, and James Taylor covers, you know. Uh, and they were absolutely massive. They were selling out like you know they were selling out uh beer kellas two nights on the run, you know, for like a thousand people each night, you know. they were probably at one stage one of the biggest groups apart from maybe the bunny men in the city, you know. Yes. Blimey. And they were just doing cover versions.
0: Yes. <coughs> so did you, I mean, because then you brought out a single, your first single was like, uh, was it 94, which was produced by Suggs as well, wasn't it? So you 84, that
1: was, yeah. 84, we did Heart, uh, Hearts and Minds was the first single. Now, throughout our career, we were always helped by people. Suggs was the first one, but then after that, Paul Heaton from the House Martins produced us as well, helped us out. And UB40, Brian Travis was involved in... Trying to get a studio time. So there's always people who, I think they like the idea of the farm. You know, I think they like the idea of the last gang in town. Yes. Because this was all before the Mondays and Oasis. So, and people didn't look like, people who were in groups didn't look like us usually, you know. Yes. I mean, since Oasis' popularity goes on stage and all that, you know, it's just, uh, you know, the ten a penny, aren't they? bought at the time, you know, I think the likes of Madness, UB40, House Martin, saw us and thought, you know, they're a street band, you know, they're, they're saying something, you know, and we always got help from people like that and John Peel and Janice Long, but we could never really, record companies would come and see us. They'd see the the interviews and the um, NMA and the sounds and live reviews, the Melody Maker, and then they come and see us and go, where's your image? And we say, well, this is the image, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, you know, that's what we wear. We, we wear our girls on stage and saying and shoes, you know. And but they could never get it. They didn't have, you know. It was all about the time of uh, the Smiths and Frankie Goes to Hollywood and all that. Um, and they thought we didn't have an image. And I was saying, look, this could be the biggest image in the world, you know.
0: Yeah. I
1: think it, <clears throat> I think it was proved by. When the Stone Roses and Oasis came along, that it was, you know, it was. That is like you know, people, you know, peop people who look like that now, and you know Le- Liam Gallagher, say for example, he was, he's regarded as yeah, that's a rock star look, but in '84, '85, it wasn't. You see, no, I guess just... it, it was seen as seen as someone who hangs around the chippy.
0: <laughs> Look, <yeah. laughs> so how would you because cause most bands you know who are you know an indie band you know working class kids and all that have a five year narrative you know and, and then they sort yeah. of break up whereas you you know you spent those early years putting out a few singles but you also did lose you know through you know, on the, on death you know two members so so that that yeah. must have been an amazing shock because no one you don't expect anyone to die when you're young do you let's face it no well uh, you
1: know what? it's absolutely tragic Andy. McFann, the drummer, he was, you know, I mean, he was our Keith Moon in many respects. I used to say to him, you uh, know, Andy, you'll never make 21 unless you calm down. And, you know, he used to laugh at me and go, Oh well, shut up, with really. <laughs> But he was just, he was one of those people who just, you know, if he had money, he'd just spend it and go, you know, a, a, a great character, a great, a great human being, really. You know, he didn't have any, you know, there's no nasty side to him, really. But he just, he just loved I think he loved the idea of, of being like Keith Moon, you know, and uh, I think he, he played like him, I think that, that was his hero, you know, and unfortunately, uh, you know, uh, uh, after me warning him, uh, no Nostradamus or anything, but I just thought he, was, he had to calm down a bit, you know, and unfortunately he died in, a, in, in the car crash, which was a massive blow to the group and couple of the group left after that you know but I thought we still had something to offer you know I still wanted to get uh you know some of our ideas across you know and I still thought we had something to say um and you know those those mid from 86 to 89 were pretty hard I mean but there was always something on the horizon there was always something like a John Peel session to keep us going for a year, you know, yes. because the great thing about John Peel sessions you used to get paid musician union rates, you know, and say there was six or seven in a band, you know, we got a fairly good big chunk of money and we put it in the bank account and it'd keep us in rehearsals, you know, for a year, you
0: know,
1: yes. Um, we weren't getting many bands. We didn't really understand the industry. We didn't realize that you needed money to pay for a press agent and, Needed money to pay for a promoter. You know, we, we we all thought it was done by merit. You know, we were a bit naive in a way. You know, yes. Well, I, I guess Even, as, as a yeah.
0: fan, I I thought the same. <laughs> I thought you know, you know, I thought everyone was a bit like John Peel. You know, you just went out yeah. there and you found that record and, and you played it. You didn't sort of get pushed and given wine and cocaine to go. And, yeah. You know, you didn't. You, yeah, did you didn't. It. You only played the records you really liked, which I thought John Peel did. You know.
1: Yeah. Um, I think he did. Yeah, I think uh, you know he was. You know, he was, you know, he certainly shaped a lot of people's uh, musical taste. But, you know, we didn't have press officers. We didn't really know. I mean, we knew about pluggers. So I used to plug the records myself, you know. So I thought I was doing a, a good job, but I obviously wasn't doing a very good job because it was hardly ever on the radio, you know. But, but um you know when we used to look to the cartel then you know the group of independent records and we did release a single with Pro Plus you know in Liverpool with uh, mm-hmm. Jeff Davis yeah. and they were a bit better organised than us but still a bit shambolic you know Yeah. I mean Jeff used to Boast that he was the most unsuccessful businessman in the city. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think was true, but luckily he got half man half biscuit, you see,
0: and, you
1: know, I think that's, uh, you know, that's been a lifesaver for him, you know, for many, many years, you know. But I think um, around about 87, we did a House Martins tour, we got a tour support with the House Martins, uh, and then we were on the verge of signing a deal with um, a label that... um, we were going to set up a subsidiary label through uh, Paul Heaton and Stan Collymore from the House Martins, and it was going to be called Fair Play Committee. After the um, the Deep South uh, in America, there was something called the Fair Play Committee, which was trying, to, was trying to get black music onto radio stations, and Paul Heaton was his idea to set this label up, which would be left Field, you know. And we were going to sign to them, and um, this took about nine months and Paul Heaton was going in for meetings for us, you know, and it all looked like it was going to come across. We were going to get a £25,000 advance, you know, which was, you know, was was unbelievable in those days, 89, you know, eighty-eight, eighty-nine, And then all of a sudden Stan Collymore decided that he was going to go to... Um, one of the Scot- remote Scottish islands and start writing children's books, and I believe he's very successful at that. <laughs> but because he did that, the house Martin split up, so the label, the idea, just evaporated in front of our eyes, you know? Yeah, because... So it was
0: it was
1: like, there was always things on the horizon, but there always seemed to be something that fell down at the
0: you know, the last minute, you know. <clears throat> well, I sort of did an interview with Steve Mack from That Petrol Emotion, and I think they were, oh, all, yeah. they were always about to think, right, this is it, Every, all the, everything's lined up, we're just about to yeah. hit the big time, and then someone would just die, or someone would leave the company that they were just about to yeah. sign with, and it was like, oh, well, that's
1: that was the thing for companies uh, A&R people would move on wouldn't they
0: you know? yes yeah, so was because like, um, yeah, that uh, was know? it he would, he'd, they were going to sign to a label and mm. then this guy who was running it or was part of it said oh Paul McCartney's just found to give and offered me a job and I can't really turn it down so I'm really sorry yeah, guys yeah. and it's a bit like yeah, so yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to leave now and it's like oh that's the end of our career <laughs> yeah. So it was a bit, yeah. beca- because with the indie world I do put it down between the years of 83 to 87 which isn't a great theory but it's the years of the Smiths and there was a definite sound you know there was the June Bride, the Smiths, yeah, and you know there was a jingle jangle kind of vibe coming. But when yes, the Go Betweens, because that was the, there was those four bands that people always mention about the eighties. There's there's the Orange Wedding presents as well, and yeah, and Orange Juice as well as the other one, which yeah, 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 But yeah. then when the Smiths broke up and things had changed, and Ecstasy started to come in as well, yeah, there, there yeah. was suddenly this kind of a lot of those bands I didn't I've interviewed. Around that time, they were on their second album. They'd got sick of each other. They'd made no money, and they thought, "I've had enough." Because the music papers had moved on to the next thing, which was going to be the dance scene. A lot of them, you know, yeah. like the Soup Dragons yeah, yeah. and the Happy Mondays made that, and the Stone Roses were there. And um, oh yeah, oh god, who's the other band who sort of did the fantastic change? Oh, Primal Scream wasn't it? They went from yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, a yeah. C86 so, band. Yeah, there was
1: certainly you know, I mean, Andy Weatherall. Um, Screaming Delica, you know, it's it's a great album, but, it, you know, it is Andy Weatherall, you know. Yes, absolutely. Um, what we, I mean, it was a godsend for us in many ways because about 89, we, were, you know, we had no deal. We'd been going for six years, everyone saying, well, if you don't get signed in that, period. But um, because we'd been, we had an idea of what you needed, how much money you needed to do, you know, for a year, for a success, you know, take time, record an album, maybe get two or three singles out and get some pluggers and some press agents. And, um, someone approached me, one of my mates who used to sell our t-shirts and said, what's, well, you know, why aren't the farm successful? My mate was asking. And I said, economics. He said, what do you mean economics? I said, economics, we've never had any investment in the group. So we can't really afford to go into decent studios, we can't afford decent equipment, we can't afford a a plugger, we can't afford a press agent, you know. And he said, Well how much would that cost? And I said, Well and this I was going on the deal we were gonna get with the the fair play committee with through Polydor. I said, Well about twenty five thousand pounds And he went, Okay, I'll set up a meeting So I went to this meeting in someone's flat in Bootle and it was a lad he was and he was saying, Well what you know what would you need? And I said, Well, you know, about £25,000 for a full year to do like an indie album and three singles. And he said, Okay, I'll lend it you. And I said, Well, what if we don't sell anything? And he said, Oh, well, that's my risk. And it turns out he was the uh, grandson of one of the Moores family who ran the Woods Pools. Right. Uh, and he wasn't the one involved in Liverpool Football Club, he was a younger, younger one. He was in his 20s. You wouldn't have known who he was. He had a pair of green flash pumps on a ripped pair, and he said, "Oh, I'll 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 lend you the money." And from that day onwards, everything changed for us because all of a sudden we could, you know, we told Suggs we had a bit of money, we'd be able to pay him this time to use the studio, and uh, then Kevin Sampson got involved. He was he'd been manager in the past, but we never had any finances behind us, so he did a blueprint in February 1990, how to get the farm onto the top of the pops, you know. And I, I read it the other day and it's it's a blueprint for what exactly happened, you know. And he, he sought after the best uh, up-and-coming uh, plugger, that was Anglo Plugin, um, who weren't well-known at the time, but like, you know, up-and-coming and also press officers, uh, best impressed, uh, who were brilliant. But, you know, they all cost money, you know, it was probably a thousand pound a month or whatever, which for an indie band was unaffordable. Yeah. But because we had the money um, lent to us, you know, the, um, we could afford it. So all of a sudden, we could afford to go into studios, afford to do a bit of a video. The the world opened up all of a sudden. We had four pages in the face, and the face hadn't even heard a record. <laughs> <laughs> but because we had a great up and coming press officer. You know, that's how it, it was like, up until then, there'd been a glass ceiling, you know. And then when we got that, um, it just, the doors opened, they just went, that's what it's all about. It's all about the money.
0: Wow. <laughs>
1: you know, it's not about, uh, you know, we could have recorded Stepping Stone, Groovy Train all together now. If we hadn't had that cash to pay for press agents and pluggers, they just would have been lost. You know? Yeah just... the same thing happens if you look at what happened to uh, uh you know uh, in 1963 when the Beatles tried to uh, break America uh, the record company wouldn't wouldn't give them any uh, money would they No so uh, so all those all those first hit singles when there was beatlemania in 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 the UK uh, all were, they were all released on independence in America and got nowhere. Yes,
0: yeah.
1: you know and they were the same the records were released a year later, and it caused Beatlemania. You know, so it was, it was, all, you know, it's not about, you know, uh, most of the time it's not, it's a, it's not about the actual, you know, how great something is. It, it's a, it's a jigsaw. It's a combination of different things, you know, and I think you've got to have all the pieces of the jigsaw especially for if, you're, if you're coming from that indie side of things, because you haven't got a big label spending loads of money. I remember um, Andy MacDonald from Godis came in in October 1990, I think it was, because Chaz Smash, who was in Madness, the Petranter, was A&R at Godis, and he, he convinced Suggs to let Andy MacDonald in. So Andy MacDonald came in, he's the only person who'd heard it up to now. He heard it all together now. And he heard it and went, oh, my God. He said, that is a Christmas number one. That is unbelievable. He said, uh, but you won't have a Christmas number one if you stay on your indie label. <laughs> <laughs> and we said, well, yeah. He said, well, if you signed to go with this, and he offered us this astronomical fee to sign for them. But we, had, we were in a position where we knew it was going to be successful anyway. So whether it was number one or number three or four, we didn't really mind, you know. So we said, Andy, thanks, but no thanks. You know, because we'll stick with our with our mates, who didn't have any knowledge of the music industry at all. But when you know they got a number one album, they had before that in February nineteen ninety. They didn't know anything about the music industry. It was like, according to Jamie Reed, did the Sex Pistols covers. It was the you know it was it was the epitome of punk rock. You know, amazing. I don't think it's ever been really covered that well because, you know, if you look at the Roses and the Mundies and people like that not from that genre, they were all tended to be on Factory. They were like, they were like it. Factory were independent, but they were more or less a major because they were getting distributed by London Records, you know. We were, we went through Pinnacle. We were all purely independent. And I remember the lads from um, Produce Records who were just lads who had no experience, as I said, of the indie. Of indie or the music industry, uh, they were at a conference, how to be, how to run a record label, you know, and Bill Drummond was there and said, What are you here for? Bill Drummond was saying, Why are you here? You've, you know, every time we release a single, the KLF, you beat us. <laughs> <laughs> so, why are you here? And we said, Oh, we, be booked on this six months ago, you know, we thought we'd just turn up, you know. And, uh, but, uh, it was just sheer, um, you know, at the time, it was like an avalanche. It was like a, a tidal wave. You couldn't stop it. You just couldn't stop it. And luckily, I mean, Stepping Stone was a massive uh, indie uh, dance hit. But uh, then we had Groovy Train, which crossed over and altogether now crossed over as well. But then our manager, Kevin, said, um, I think we should re release Stepping Stone. It was all, only ever available on 12 inch. And we went, no, we want to keep the you know, the indie fans, happy. We were still thinking independent, you know, mentality. And so we released another single off the album, Sparta was called Don't Let Me Down, which only got into like the top 30, you know, 30 or 31. And really, we should have re-released Stepping Stone because it would have probably been another top 10 hit, you know. Kevin was right, but you see, what happens is when the band gets successful, a lot of the bands start thinking, you know, it's all down to them, you know.
0: But you wrote, um, you uh, wrote, you wrote it though, didn't you? So you must have, you must have been an incredible, got a creative scene at that stage in your life, you know, sort of being able to yeah, pull that together.
1: We were, we were, but we also toured in so much that it was hard to write new stuff, you know. And also the pressure when you do a new, when you get a number one album, Spartacus. The pressure is then we were touring Europe, we toured in America. Uh, we're doing pretty well in America. Uh, we went on tour with Big Odoo Dynamite, and that was fantastic, you know. But then the pressure is on for the second album, you know, You've got to follow it up. But it's hard to write when you're touring, and also there's there was like uh, there was problems beginning to emerge in the band, you know, because everyone was thought it was you know their ideas that were you know we ain't listening. You know, Kevin was the manager and, um, you know, Kevin's blueprint got us to where we were, but I think L.A.M. probably is to blame, as much to blame as anyone, because I wasn't strong enough, you know. People started in tools, you know. <laughs> 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 Literally in tools, you know. Was it a bit so, spinal tap? Uh,
0: Did you have spinal tap moments then with, with sort of... It was,
1: it was everywhere. You know, we actually went to a studio in Cornwall called Sawmill Studio to try and keep the band in the studio, because what was happening with the band when we were in London... Is people would come on the Tuesday, stay Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and go home because they said they had to source antique radiators or something, you know, for the new house that we're getting here. <laughs> was all madness. You know? So everything that we would have done had been lost, you know, because it was like. Uh, so we, Kevin decided to go to a studio where he could only get in and out uh, with, when the tide was in, you know it was a tidal studio so you get there on a rowing boat. but that didn't stop the group they <laughs> still escaped there was an escape route down a railway track into the town you know my god uh, so, so i mean it was, i wouldn't say but and then also when we went to the studio in Sawmills, um uh, the, the producer um sorry the engineer kevin petrie he was a brilliant engineer you know really cool fella you know brilliant engineer, and he, he started to feel all well, so every day he'd say, I'm not feeling up to it today, lads, go, go into town or whatever, you know, and which was like, so we spent two weeks in sawmills not recording anything, <laughs> just paying for the studio, thousands of thousands of pounds, you know, just having the time of our lives, you know, it was great, we wouldn't change it for a while, but you know, I think we'd lost sight of of what we were doing, in fact, the, you know, the other songwriter who'd, who'd done mainly done Sparks with me, uh, Steve Grimes, I was the lyricist. He was you know, mainly the music, you know. He, say, he said he admitted that he, he just he'd had enough, you know. Yes. We, we burnt out really. It was 18 months we'd burnt out, you know.
0: Did you feel that? Because you did a cover of Don't You Want Me? Was that was that a bit of a desperate moment? No, that was a tongue-in-cheek.
1: That was uh, that was that was. We did that because it was uh, Ruby tracks from the NME. And you had to pick one, um, number one, from the last 50 years. And we thought everyone would be expecting us to do the specials or the jam or the clash. So we, what had hurt us in the press, with people calling us, uh, um, they said, oh, they look like they work on a building site, you know. Uh, they look like builders, they look like electricians, you know. And this became the standard joke for middle-class music journalists, you know. Uh, so we thought we'll do something the opposite to what they think we are. So we'll do, don't you want me? And we'll all get dressed up in glam glam rock gear. And if you see the video, everything's supposed to be opposite of the farm, you know. George Best's at the bar, he was in it, refusing a drink. I'm there as John Cervolte, you know, dressed, you know. So the whole thing was supposed to be a tongue in cheek, but no one got, no (laughs) one got the joke. It was maybe too clever for its own good, you know. Yes. Then we turned up at Redden Festival in 92. We just signed a big deal with Sony. Uh, it was a massive deal, you know, and um, really that was probably, I'd say that was the act of where we're thinking, you know, everything's gone right for 18 months and started to go wrong. Maybe Sony with their money and their clout will be able to sort, because we had, by then, we had 20 odd people on the payroll, you know. We had roadies and, you know, it's like It was like a, you know, it was like a cottage industry, you know, so we didn't want to let them down. So we were looking at how can we keep this juggernaut going, you know? Yes. Well, that, it's uh, interesting. So I think that was the big mistake, yeah.
0: Yeah, because I know Madness had... The, I remember hearing their story that they suddenly realised they'd employed all their mates and, yeah. and their mates, and it was like the responsibility was just... You know, the band were, were, were finished, yeah. and, and they weren't enjoying it, but everyone was just jumping on no, the that's grade.
1: exactly what happened to us. Now, Sugg said to us, and we'd witnessed that because we'd done Hearts and Minds in 1984 when that was happening to Madness. And the first thing, you know, Suggs said when we started selling millions of records, and that's whatever you do, lads, don't employ your mates. <laughs> what did we do? We employed all our mates. It's a work, It's a working class thing, you know. I think it's, you know, you people have grown up with you and been with you when you've had nothing. So, you know, we were taking people on tour with us on selling t shirts, we were taking people's and their mates, you know. And when we tried to get it a bit. Um, more professional, they saw it as a bit of an insult, you know, and, you know, we got, we got a try to get a company from London to do the T-shirts because the T-shirts were great when it was a cottage industry, we were only playing to like a few hundred people, but when you're playing to like four or five thousand people, you've got to keep stock, you've got to keep, you've got to keep a record of everything, you know, you can't, <laughs> you know, this, our T-shirt, he was a great character, you know, and I still look the bones of him in many ways, I haven't spoken to him for years, like, but, you know, he, if someone had come up to the t-shirt store and say the t-shirt was £15 and they only had 13 he'd give it to them, you see. You know, and saying, you can't do that now. You can do that when we were like playing in front of a few people. You can't do that now because they'll say, oh, I've got that for 13 So you're done a in a the bartering system then, aren't you? <laughs> Everyone goes I've oh, got it for 13. I got two quid knocked off there. You can't do that, but, you know, they just wouldn't. They couldn't. Yes. You know, they couldn't. They couldn't. Wasn't it wasn't, they didn't, comprehend it, they just didn't want to do it, you know, so we had all sorts of people employed who, um, you know, we wanted to employ them because we wanted to give them a chance, you know, but I don't think there was, uh, for many respects, I think, you know, uh, I think a lot of things had gone wrong, I think the band had started to, you know, to believe that they could do what they liked, you know, we had a bit of money coming in, so people were were more interested in the, the house decoration, and the new record,
0: you know. Radiators. The it's the radiator. It's
1: the truth. So, be- it is. It fucking, I should have been stronger, you know, but I just didn't want to cause disharmony, you
0: know. Yes, absolutely. Because at that stage, you know, Britpop was kind of exploding because we'd had that grunge period, but then you had, you know, you'd know, you had, a, you know, a guy called Gerald and then you had the Orb and then yeah. that, that amazing, like I mentioned, Primal Scream and Soup Dragons and the Happy Mondays. Mm. So you were there, right there with the Happy Mondays who were just kind of phenomenally yeah big at that stage weren't they? Or they were getting. massive, yeah yeah. They and so massive. and so then when you went to do Hullabaloo, did that yeah. were, did you have a feeling this was going to be over?
1: Yeah, when we were doing Hullabaloo, we still had Seymour Stein on our side in America, you see, from uh, Sire Records, who'd signed, you know, all the Ramones and Madonna and, you know, Heads. So we still had him on our side. He still said, you know, the pop music that you do, he loved it. You know, he could see that we, you know, we had we had pop songs, you know, that could cross over. Uh, so he still signed us to America. So about 93, we only had... Hullabaloo was never released in the UK. Uh, we'd lost our deal with Sony. Uh, so uh, Hullabaloo was only released. So we went over and toured Hullabaloo over in America. And, you know, it was... We knew it was... We, from... Put it this way, from 1991 when I was doing... No wonder do people do press conferences because I was doing, say, interviews in Los Angeles before we played with Big Audio in the night time. There was like about, you know, 15 interviews in the day. Or, you know, I had to repeat the same thing 15 times <laughs> when they come to the hotel room. No wonder people do press conference. You could never sing. You know, your voice was going all the time, you know, because of... of uh, Talking too much during the day, you know. Um, so no wonder people do press conferences, but I think by hullabaloo, I decided that it probably wasn't going to last that long, you know. Uh, that you know, maybe hullabaloo would take off in America, but it, you know, it did okay, but it didn't, you know. We had a song called Messiah, which I thought was a great song, which was about uh Waco, about David Koresh, you oh, know. Yes, yes. So, uh, in the video, I get dressed up as looks a bit like, I look a bit like David Cottage with long hair and Keith's a rabbi and it's it's all about the hypocrisy of religion really and the fact, you know, um, we thought it was a great song but it never really took off in America. We, maybe we didn't have, you know, the money behind it. I don't know. I don't know but it, you know, we thought it would take off, you know, but we didn't really have the tour support to carry on playing over there, you know, and from playing with Big Odo Dynamite to thousands of people and, you know, big venues, you know, we were playing in small bars, so <laughs> we started to think, fucking hell, this is, uh, this is going downhill, you know, we were doing acoustic shows and some of them, you know.
0: Oh, blimey. Uh, yes.
1: Yeah, you know, which was all right, you know, I mean, we had a good time doing it, you know, but uh, it wasn't really, it wasn't us, you know, we were just trying to keep, you know, some people employed with us, really, you know, and I mean, we had to, get, that tour we did in, I think it was 94, we had the best time of our lives, you know, in terms of uh, the laughs we had. And it, we coincided with the World Cup, you know. Of uh, yes. The World Cup over there. So we wanted to take in some games. Everywhere we went, the games had either just finished or weren't starting until the next day or something. <laughs> yes. It was the curse of the farm. That's what we called it, the curse of the farm. Yeah. You know, and uh, But we did train at Palo Alto, where Brazil were training we turned up with the Eagles tour bus. We had the Eagles tour bus with Hotel of California on the outside of it, you know. Uh, the Eagles had just reformed, and had tried to get, they'd sold their tour bus to a tour company, and they tried to get it back. And they said, oh, no, this British band have fired it. And, they, you know, they tried to pull the weight, but the tour company said, no, no, they paid the deposit, and, we, you know, they're having it, you know. So everywhere we rent in America uh, in late, you know, in... Um, service stations or whatever, you know, we'd have truck drivers banging on the door, going, uh, "You guys, the Eagles, you know," and then <laughs> <laughs> fuck off. <laughs> and then once we stopped, thing was in Boston, and we'd be traveling overnight, so you get to Boston say five in the morning, so the bus would park outside the hotel, and you'd all sleep on the bus till the the rooms opened at midday, you know, and our roadies, easy all had long air Got off the bus and you could hear there was a there was a crowd outside. You know, there was fifty people with cameras. Are the Eagles in there? Are the, are the Eagles in there? Because they were playing around by Boston around right about that time. You know,
0: excellent.
1: And the the roses going. Oh yeah, they're just get, you know just having a bit of a kip, You know, having a sleep. You know, they'll be off soon. <laughs> so when we got off, you know, uh, when we got off about two three hours later uh every all the f- cameras would be going, and paparazzi and everything, and they go, "You guys ain't the Eagles." <laughs> <laughs> so there was all sorts of mad incidents like that, you know, funny incidents. But you know, there was certainly a feeling at the time that uh, it felt like in the eighties when we had no money. You, you know the, you know we were still playing to the audiences and still you know giving out uh, giving hundred percent. But you know, you could feel you know when you, you feel it and you. Uh, in your
0: bones, that it's something's not right, you know. Yes. So because when I I did an interview with um, the guitarist from James, and around that around the same time as this period, I suppose they'd had massive success, and then he said yeah. they, were, they were sitting around a swimming pool in Spain, and he said, "Look, why don't we break up? We all really hate each other." And the rest of the band went, oh, thank God someone said it." And that that was kind of it for about ten yeah. years. Did you did you have a, a kind of a moment where you said? Actually, this is the end, to quote Jim Morrison.
1: Uh, probably, uh, yeah, I think it, we, uh, think it was It was probably on that American tour, yeah. It was on that American tour, I think that's when everyone realised. But we also, um, our drummer, Roy, was getting married in 95, I think it was. So it was the next year after the tour in 94. And he said, like, you know, we hadn't really played after America. And we hadn't done many other gigs, and he just said, Let's just do one last gig for my stag night, <laughs> <laughs> which is perfect farm stuff, you know. So we actually went to Dublin uh, for his stag do, and we played at midnight in some mad club somewhere, you know. And that was the last gig we did until. Um, well, for about 10 years, I think it was,
0: yeah. Yeah, so did you feel like the band had finished at that point with the, that, that moment after that gig? Yeah,
1: yeah, because me and Keith started another band called Honk uh, Papa. It never released anything, but you know, spent about two or three years recording in studios and all that. And then our um, keyboard player said, uh, We're not playing live, are we? We said, Yeah, we've got a few gigs lined up, we're going to start. Promoting the gigs and then get some, get a few things released. You know, I said, "Oh, I can't play live. I don't like playing live." So (laughs) that was another project, which was aborted. But some, some, we had some good songs there. You know.
0: Yes, yes, but then. I mean. I was going to say yeah. th- yes, because often when a band finishes, the you know the members feel a bit lost after a few days when they've they initially it's like oh thank God that's over, and then it's like, oh my God now what do I do? I mean obviously you yeah. had, had a career, but I just wondered how you cope because with most indie bands they didn't have the big kind of kind of such. No, glow. I mean luckily
1: because we are, we didn't sign to in a way the fact that we never signed to a major in the eighties was 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 fantastic for us because. <clears throat> you know in the mid 90s when um, the lad from uh, who'd set up the label um, he, he said do you want to make us an offer for the uh, for the for the tapes you know and the copyrights so we made them an offer and then bought them all off him so me and Steve Steve Grimes, who's the songwriter we asked the others if he wanted to throw money in but they either they didn't have it or they didn't want to you know so then me and Steve bought the rights so uh, our lawyer keeps on telling everyone in London that we're the most astute businessmen going <laughs> but it was, it was basically uh, it was by chance it was simply because um, the lad who was involved in the record label Produce Barney he just well, he said I'm not doing anything with them you know if you want to buy them off me and uh, try and sell them on to uh, you know to get them licensed by someone you know feel free to do. it. So there's a lot of other groups who've got who've got um, deals with the major labels and they, they can never get them back, never get the rights back to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're never earning a penny because they're not really exploited, you know. No, so yeah. at least you know we could. Then we went to uh, I think it was Castle Music first of all, and then it was Demon Records, and now we're with BMG. So we get, you know, uh, we were able to license to these people. And as I say, our lawyer, Diane Doux, on it, you know, you think the farmer are a bunch of scallies from Liverpool, <laughs> you know. But they were, you know, they, they saw it, but it wasn't really, it was all, it wasn't really, um, we didn't plan it, it just happened, you know.
0: Wow, it just I know. happened. And
1: we were, we were in, a, in, in a lucky position that we could get the rights back to it, you know. So You've got the rights back to everything, you know.
0: Which is amazing, because I talked to, was it Jim Bob from Carter, and he said yeah. oh, they still owe the record company, like, so much money, they'll never...
1: They'll never make another penny, They'll know.
0: never see anything, because they... Well, that's
1: us in that's us in America. We owe <laughs> sire hundreds of thousands, you know, but uh, in this, I think Sony had to write it off. Um, anyway, Sony did know in the original, all the hits, they were on produce records, you see, so... That's what we bought, you
0: see. My God, do you? I mean, so because most people don't quite understand how the music industry works, and I must admit, I'm not, that, you know, like aware of all those, you know, bit. But does that sort of make your brain slightly itch when you think, my God, in America
1: we owe that, but in this country we're, we're quids in? Yeah, I wouldn't say we're quids in, but you know, we do. You know, we just, I think, you know, it gives us, um you know, it stops us from going destitute, you know. Yeah. But I mean, obviously. Now with Spotify, no one's buying CDs anymore. Or, so with Spotify now, you've got to get, you know, your stream. And if, I think it's, um, we have, you know, look on our Spotify, we have about 165,000, listeners a month. Uh, but if you work that out, you know, it's it's, you get paid no point no three pence each stream you know yes. you've got to get into the millions of streams to start in and a a go, you know a decent living out of it you know yeah uh, so then to but, us- but, so- but there's all you know obviously there's all sorts of diff- because we license to um say b m g they'll deal with all that you see, so they they'll have it'll be streamed on not just Spotify but it'll be amazon music won't it, and it'll be all sorts of streaming platforms, Google music, you know, all sorts, so we don't really see uh, the business side of that, you know, and we're not really that interested in that side of it. You know, it's just that um, we don't want to really get involved in the business side of it, because it's, you know, it wrecks your heads, really, you know, thinking about it.
0: Oh, yes, it makes most people quite bitter and twisted. But then you bring the band back together again towards the, the O years, was, don't you? It
1: was the... Um, I think it was 2005. What happened was Steve Grimes, the guitarist and songwriter, um, he got bowel cancer. And he said he thought he was going to die, you know. And he was on his hospital bed, you know, all wired up with all sorts of uh, contraptions going into his body, you know. And he said, he just thought to himself, why didn't we play live more? I would have loved to have played live more, you know. And he was the main person, really, for, uh, objecting to. Getting back together, you know, so it wasn't really. Uh, we didn't. It wasn't like a, a band meeting or whatever. He just said well, we got a, an offer of uh, to a bit of a tour with the Mondays in two thousand and five, and I thought he'd say no, you know, and um, but then he told me that he had this soul on the road to Damascus experience <laughs> yes. when he was in his hospital bed and went, "No, I want to play these now. I want to play them," you know. So ever since then, two thousand and five. We've been doing festivals, really, you know, um, which has been great. We had the Justice Tonight tour as well in 2011, 2012, which was absolutely fantastic. You know, it was about raising awareness for Hillsborough. Uh, and that was brilliant because wherever we went, because Mick Jones, it was originally a dump by the Sun concert in Liverpool at the Olympia. And then the next day, Mick Jones loved it so much. He said, we've got to take this on the road. He said, Joe would have wanted us to. He said, I picked up a guitar to fight injustice, and this is a massive injustice, and we're going to take it on the road. I'm going to take it to Europe. You know, and he was like, he was like the Pied Piper, Mick. So then when when Simon Moran, SJM, um, got involved and and sorted a tour out for us, wherever we went, someone would get up on stage with us. So The first gig was in Cardiff, and uh, James Dean Bradfield got up from uh, the Manics and sang a couple of songs with us. Then we went to Manchester and John Squire and Ian Brown got up, and this was before the Roses had got back together. They'd sold out Heaton Park for the following summer, but they'd never played before, so it was like we had to keep that thick, secret, you know, and the buzz went round Manchester, you know, an hour before, and, you know, it was great. Occasion, then the next night was in Sheffield and Richard Hawley got up and Reverend the Makers, John and they got up. Uh, And then in Liverpool, it was cast Billy Bragg, John Bishop come and done that. In London, Primal Scream, uh, Phil Simmonen came to play bass on some of the Clash tracks, you know, because we do the Justice Sight Band was Pete Wirey, The Farm, and Mick Jones, you know. So we do some of, ours, some of ours, but about seven or eight class songs. And the reason Mick said I won't do class songs for any anything. He said, "But uh, I know Mick would. Uh, I know Joe would have wanted me to do this because it's such an injustice, you know." And he said, he said, said "Joe's always with us. He's you always know. there in spirit, you know." And it was like it was biblical stuff, you know. It was like when he was saying things like this, we were really all in tears, you know. It was like unbelievable, and the and the tour was fantastic, and then the next summer the Roses wanted us to support them in some of the Europeans Lyon and Milan and places like that, you know it was incredible stuff, you know, Heaton Park we played as well so it was, it was really a combination of, we'd had a relationship with Mick since Big Old Dynamite you know, but it was and he'd written a song for us um, back in Um as like a tribute to the farm, he said because what you've what you have done. So they, this is what was important. Was the likes of Jamie Reid saying what he said about punk rock ethic, you know? Mick Jones writing a song for us because it, it inspired him to write because he, he'd re, he'd read all about it. You know, rejection, rejection, rejection. Then done it on our by ourselves as a pure indie band. Everything was indie, you know. Um, and uh, it just
0: inspired them to do it. So, you know, it was great. It was great. Amazing. I mean, it is It's one of the great stories. Because it's interesting, because after... I mean, I notice with a lot of bands, when they've sort of split out, they come back. The thing is, like, there's a sort of a period of time which is somewhere between 20, 25 years, where I think when we're doing things, we don't really sort of appreciate it, we just take it as normal, and then you start yeah. to... You get to that point a bit like, I guess, your, your friend who was in hospital with cancer. But you sometimes then look back and you sort of analyse it and think, God, what we did back then was quite extraordinary, you know. And the, you yeah, know so I, so I, I, I just wonder if the farm, you know, it's like people at the time thought, oh yeah, this is one of the many bands and, you know, it's all a bit just like normal, isn't it? I and think then, so,
1: but I think, I think one day somebody will write, somebody will write um, i out one day. You know, and uh, you know, I mean, we we know lots of journalists but I think someone will really look at it and, and say, God, yeah, that was amazing because, you know, not only did it did they get a number one album, it they did it with people who had no experience in the music industry, you know, people who were you know who who were just in the in the office when people rang up and go, oh, Can you speak to your A and R department? Watch that lad? And put the phone down. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they were just you smoking pot all day, and it was like it was like it was, it was almost like Apple wanted to be, you know. It yes. was like groups would come off the street and say, you know, can you sign us? And the you know they could, you know, and they would, you know. Well, uh, we lost, we were we were torn a lot then, so a lot we didn't make a lot of the decisions. So it was like people in the office, you know, but but it it was meteoric rise uh, and amazing amazing uh, time and I think someone will write a proper story about it once you know um
0: Yes well absolutely and because the one thing that I've noticed and I suppose that's the thing about that 20 or 30 years is that I just that, that recently there's been a lot of films out on bands from that period like the the wedding present had one on George Best and then there's been one on the go betweens the chills the slits even the door yeah. mixtures so I, I guess you have a lot of material there in your archives of f- film and footage and yeah. bits and pieces and various yeah. interviews so I could imagine quite easily somebody getting very excited to, to put together a film, because actually the film thing, you know, format kind of works as, as on so many yeah, levels. Yeah.
1: Possibly, yeah. I've, got, I've kept, you know, lots of the archive stuff. I've been, because it's 30 years since Stepping Stone, I've been looking through some of it, you know. I don't think even the group realise... What they achieved, you know, because it was, it was, a, it was, it was absolutely massive, you know. Yes. From like, from 89, from not being able to get, you know, a column inch in the enemy to being within a year, the, uh, <clears throat> you know, in London on the pages, four pages in the face and being the darlings of the London in crowd, you know, it's, it's, it was a meteoric rise, you know. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and it really down to, the blueprint that Kevin did and, and what Suggs did and you know I think you know it was, it was a template really you know for like uh, for a lot of bands you know
0: yes and what would you say to a, an 18 year old self starting out after all this all these decades of experience of some amazing ups and some tricky
1: moments just keep on going believe in yourself you know if you think you've got something to offer you know, and just don't. I mean, don't go by the. You know, don't be convinced to do something you don't want to do by, you know, people in the industry. I mean, I always remember um, Bill Drummond came to us. about right, '86, I think it was mid '80s anyway, and he said, "I know what you're doing." He "I know all. Of, you know, I, I know what you're up to." You know, <laughs> he said, "If you let me manage you, <clears throat> you know, I'll have you on top of the pops with eighteen months." You know, and what you've got to start doing is go go on stage in tracksuits and have hard dogs with you, you know. (laughs) Staffordshire Bull Terrier-type dogs or whatever. And I said, uh, great idea, not for us. You know, and it was probably, he could see what was happening in maybe New York and places like that, you know, hip-hop and all that, you know, and he could see that. And he could maybe see the the farm had an element of that look about us, you know, street look. You know, and he was ahead of the game and obviously bit of a bit of a madman, but bit of a genius as well, you know, and I think he, he saw it. You know, he could see it. But, you know, we, were, we wanted to be taken seriously as a political band. We didn't want to be on stage with dogs, you know. <laughs> so we just went, uh, thanks, but no thanks. So I think that's it, just keep to your beliefs, you know, and, you know, uh, don't try and uh, go with fashion.
0: Yes. I mean,
1: people might say, oh, well, yeah, fancy saying that when he had the horn section and the brass section and all that, but <clears throat> if you listen to parts of minds in 84, know, there's, there's a certain element to that, which is, uh, you know, uh, indie dance, you know, if you listen to it, you know. It's just that I, I went to see Big Audio in 85 and I thought, that's the future of music. That is it. You know, uh, sampling, Yes. Drum beats, drum loops, and it wasn't really, um, it wasn't really the the Mondays or you know, the groups like that that convinced us. It was before that. It was it was big audio dynamite.
0: Yeah, what Mick f-
1: Jones was doing, what Mick Jones was doing with the E equals MC squared and all that type of stuff. It was just ahead of its time, and they've never been given um, the the acknowledgement. Really, you know. Well, I loved of what they were doing. it.
0: It was the second album with "Come On Every Beatbox," which I thought was stunning. It was because I saw that. I think that must have been <clears> that particular <throat> tour when they came to the UEA, and it was it was a really good vibe. It was cool. Yeah, was and amazing.
1: you know, you listen to things like Samba Drome, you know, uh, about the Robin Hood of the Favelas. Like they're just brilliant, you know. And he's using all technology, and it's fantastic. It? And <clears throat> you can see, Stumman was Was rock and roll wasn't he? but he Mick was by. Sandinista was doing magnet, you know he was trying to get more of a dancey feel to it wasn't he you know and yes. he, he um, but yeah I think <clears throat> Big Audio they were our um, they're the ones that we look to you know yes. and it wasn't until this lad got involved that we could afford the technology to get the samplers out otherwise we would have done it in 87 you know yes.
0: I know. It's funny. That's, that's around that same time that Zig Zig Sputnik were trying to do their thing, but that was a bit too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a bit too Bill yeah. Drummond, wasn't it, really?
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, bless And that is the end of the interview with Peter Hooten from The Farm. Thank you for listening. If you still are, It would be a miracle, really, if you got to the end. But um, I enjoyed it and I hope Peter did as well. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just to see 86 show. It's always nice to hear any messages, feedback, make it positive and enjoyable in these tricky times. I don't think we need negatives anyway. um, And also our podcast, lots of these shows, you can find them on Spotify, iTunes and podcast. Bean, we love pod bean. Um, just do C86 show, they're all there, plus much, much more. Anyway, stay safe. Until next time. Thank you. Bye.